Welcome back. Episode 13 now. Unlucky for some, but not unlucky for her, for us, hopefully, Matt. I hope that's not a bad omen. And I hope it's not. I'm sure it won't be. I'm joined again by my good friend and partner in coaching crime, Matt Long, who works alongside me at Loughborough University, and we have a group who we support here, but is one of our NLC coaches as well. This week, we're here to talk on the New Levels Coaching Podcast all about running to feel and all about running to split. So those of you who are let's say obsessed by the watch, this is certainly one for you. And remember, we are the podcast that aims to educate and inspire the endurance world. And that's exactly what we aim to do this week. So Matt, before we kick off, um, what have you been up to? Or what have you got on your radar this weekend? Because I hear there's some exciting fight news coming up for you. Well, there is. I've I've chosen a sport for a good cause. Uh, uh, I'm going to be raising some money this weekend with a good friend of mine, Zoltan Titan, who's a boxing coach, originally from Hungary. He now resides in my hometown, where beer comes from, where Marmite comes from, where Burton Albion comes from. That is, of course, Burton-on-Trent. Uh, we're going to be raising money for a mental health charity called Mind. We're going to be doing a, a charity boxing match in Burton, Burton Arena, Burton Market Hall. Uh, we're going to be there uh, from Sunday at one o'clock Onwards, so I've picked a sport where I'm. If the referee gets out, I'm guaranteed a top two finish. <laughs> I would never. It. I can't even get a top two finish at part run in my age category, but I can at boxing. That's why I've picked a sport to get a top two finish. Here's me thinking the fighting pride of Burton was big Fraser Clark, but it's it's big Matt Long. Whenever he's in the room, I just duck down behind the settee. <laughs> so that's to look forward to this weekend. Uh, the weekend just gone. We were in Valencia for Valencia Marathon, which was incredible. A big well done to all our marathon runners and a lot of our marathon runners who've had some really good performances over the past few weeks. I know you've had some really good performances as a coach as well, Matt, from Thank a couple of weeks much. ago. Yeah. All credit to your own guidance, of course. But uh, yeah, we had a brilliant weekend in the sun over in sunny Spain. It was lovely. And then we came back to horrible weather here. But one, one topic of conversation, which it leads really nicely into this this podcast, uh, actually, was around the watches in, in major marathons. A lot of people rely on those watches. And we hear this time and time again in the running world, and particularly with the athletes we coach. And people obviously want the watch there as guidance to help them pace their race. And we try and get them to be more familiar with running to feel. And when you run in these big races, when there's a lot of people around and you know, you're in built up areas, the watch can be can be off and it can be way off and it can be really tricky to judge the, the pace that you're running at. And on the back of the weekend on Sunday, a lot of people said, I'm, I'm never using my watch again for a marathon. Really? It's useless. Like really struggled with it. And I thought, well, perfect timing because Matt's coming in on Tuesday to talk about this exact subject, about running to feel, running to pace, uh, looking at technology a little bit, and also mm. looking at how we can maybe combat that and some different training methods that can help us to run a little bit more to feel. So I thought, well, what a really good way to kick us off. Definitely. So, yeah, I think to, to add a bit of context here, Matt, I've you have kindly passed on an article to me that you've done in the past which spoke a lot about running to feel um, and it points to kind of not the origins around this but somebody who used it within their coaching very successfully back in America in a, in a very famous place Oregon Tracktown USA Bill Bowerman would you like to go into a little bit of detail about what we know about Bowerman and maybe give our listeners an insight into Bill Bowerman if they haven't heard of him which I know a lot of people will have but maybe get a bit of an insight into the great man himself and and why he used this method so successfully yes guys i mean if you've ever bought a pair of nike shoes or any kind of nike apparel i think originally lewis the wasn't the brand called blue ribbon sports blue ribbon sports and, and a quick book recommendation here matt there's a really good book called shoe dog which is uh, by the founder of nike yes and it mentions things about blue ribbon sports and bowerman and the nike track club over there so yeah um blue ribbon sports was the original nike but there's a, a good book recommendation shoe dog for our listeners Good. So in, in the early 70s, I believe, um, Bowerman began to develop shoes, particularly using his iron. They were known as the, the Nike waffle shoes, if you remember. Well, you're too young to remember. But I remember having in the late 70s, early 80s, as a club runner in Burton-on-Trent, a pair of these Nike waffle shoes. I'm sure if you went on eBay, as I often do, because we discussed I, I love athletics memorabilia, You'd pay hundreds and hundreds of pounds for these original kind of Nike waffle shoes. And I'll ask you a question, just sticking with the, the shoe side of it. Um, what was the first pair? Who wore the first pair of Nike shoes 
to win an Olympic gold medal on the track. It was 1980. It was one of my heroes. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, the Moscow Olympics, it was. Moscow Olympics. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with... Steve Ovette. It was Steve Ovette. Yeah. Shake my hand. Well, I thought I was I was doing the maths and I was thinking, well, Steve beat Seb first, and it's yeah. very likely that he was in a pair of Nikes as well. Yes. But when you said who won a gold medal, I thought, well, yeah, he got there before Seb, so it must have been Steve. I know Steve Cram, who's another one of your idols, yes. claims that he he believes he might have run in the first pair of Nikes in the UK. He might have right. owned the first pair because he was sent a pair <coughs> to America because Brendan Foster was doing some work with them at the time. Of course. And, and they sent some over. But in relation to the waffle shoes, the, the reason, obviously, it's now, you know, it's a, it's a popular tale almost, but in one of the films, Prefontaine, they show Bowerman, don't they, with his yes, machine making those exact shoes you're talking about. Yes, and so one of the tragedies of Bowerman, I believe, is, is not just because one of his, or perhaps his most famous, athlete of all time Steve Prom Steve Prefontaine uh, died tragically early in a car crash in 1975 I believe it was um, one of the tragedies about Bauman is I think that because of his remarkable uh, commitment to shoe technology and shoe innovation and, 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 and what we now call Nike is that we forget what a, what a brilliant coach he actually was mm. and I think for me that he came up with two very simple concepts which to me, are as relevant today, 40, 50 years on, as, as to when those concepts were formed. One of, one of which is, is date pace, the other of which is, is goal pace. And I think if we can convey the, the meaning of those two, those two concepts today and the difference between them, then we've achieved we've achieved our goal. Our goal for the podcast today to yeah inform listeners a little bit more about this this date pace and, and goal pace and before before we do that, I think it's a really noticeable point about, you know, Bowerman is associated with Nike and we know the success Nike's had. And sometimes we do forget what a great coach he was. And another book recommendation, one which you passed on to me, is one of Bowerman's coaching books, which is, is fascinating. Um, is it Men of Oregon, is it Men called? Of Oregon, Men of yeah. Oregon, yeah. And um, But it's sometimes the most simple of methods that stand the test of time. And, exactly, yes. And in a sport where it's very easy now to overcomplicate it with the technology we have around us, I think it's really nice to go back to these simple methods and look at them and see how effective they are today. And they are still very effective today, and they're still prevalent with particularly the elite runners in our sport. But I think people who are often new to the sport and they come into the sport in what we call the Strava culture, which we spoke about on the podcast last time. We did, didn't we? Yeah. We did. We touched on that. And maybe because technology is now present for them, and I think you, you used the word omnipresent with technology and social media last time. Can't get away from it. Can't escape it. Whereas back in the day, they didn't know anything else. So they had to come up with these methods. Absolutely. But the fact it stood the test of time shows how effective it is. So let's start there, Matt, around, um, well, let's start off with date pace. What do you mean by that? People are listening and probably going, what, what are you talking about, date pace? Yeah, well, date pace then is, is, is it means that we, we can track it by split. The stopwatch is, is relevant, but it's very much the kind of pace that you feel able to run at on a particular day. So let me give you an example. If Let's imagine hypothetically that, that Bowerman, the late great Bauman is is at the track with the late great Prefontaine. They're they're preparing for the uh, the 1972 Olympics. And let let's set this hypothetical session. It's 12400s. Classic. And and Bill Bauman's there with his stopwatch, and he says to Pre, uh, as as he's, he was known, he says to Steve Prefontaine, right, 12400s minute recovery at your 5k date pace. So I mean, Prefontaine went on, I think, in 1974 to run a, an, what was then an American record of 1321. So I think that a, a kind of date pace would be, well, let's imagine that's 64 seconds, I think it's for, for 400 meters. For 1320, yeah. yeah. Bang on. So basically, Bowerman says, well, it's, it's April 1972. You can't yet run 12 fours in 64 seconds, Steve. But I reckon a, a decent date pace today would be 66 seconds a quarter. Go and smash out 12 400s, minute recovery at 66 seconds a quarter. That would be an example of, of date pace. So what we're saying here is that the date you're doing that session, that yeah. workout, it's the pace you're capable of 
on that date mm. and not the pace that you're expecting to run when the goal race comes around, yeah. which in this case is the Olympics would have been July time. I think it was even later. I think it was September. Wow. Yeah, so wow. I didn't late. know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's flip it on its head. Let's imagine that uh, Bowerman had said to, to Prefontaine, I'll ask you as a coach and an athlete, go on, try and run it. Your goal pace, we've got to get you running at 64 seconds a quarter, and it's it's April 1972. We've still got four, five months to the Olympics. And let's imagine that he strives to do that. What could happen or what could have happened hypothetically to Steve Prefontaine in that April session? Well, I guess what I would expect to happen is he wouldn't be able to achieve it because he's not in the condition and he's not... He's not at the. He's not gone through the periodization within his right, training plan yeah. to allow him to to be there. But the biggest thing for me, if that was to happen to me mentally, that would have such a knock on me um, because I'd start to worry that you know, oh God, I can't hit these paces, and, and my coach is expecting me to hit these paces already. Mm. And you know, psychologically, that'd be having a big effect on me. But the other thing is, if I try to do that. What's the knock-on effect physically on me for my other sessions? If I went out and did, you know, put myself on my back to try and achieve this in a training session, what's the knock-on effect of that on the other training that is still to come? So I think it would be, one, it would be a huge ask to do mm. that, um, but it also could have really bad psychological consequences on the athlete if they didn't achieve what they thought the coach was at, expecting him to achieve on that given day. And let's deal with that psychology. Again, I'll ask you as a, a former elite athlete, you, you must have had, as we've all had, even me as a club runner, but you have sessions that, you know, you're, you know the 12-400 types... You have to pull out. You 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 step off the track. How how did that make you feel? What what emotions did you go through after? Terrible. It's the the one thing that happened to me when I when I almost quit the sport because it mm. makes you feel as low as as you can possibly feel. You feel like a failure. But it's you only feel, a training session. It, it's yeah, and it never is, is it? Just no. a training session, not to the athlete. Sure. Um, because. All the hard work you've done can be undone in one training session. I find this a lot with athletes we coach. They can go on a run of great sessions, six, seven, eight, nine sessions in a row, all perfect, mm. all feeling great. And then they have one bad day and all of a sudden overnight, they think they've become a bad athlete. Yeah. And we've all done it. We all Because we then start overanalyzing sure. and thinking something's gone wrong and, and putting those sessions in there that are almost overreaching at that time could be really detrimental. Yeah, so the, there's the, again, it's very interesting that you've mentioned a concept that was on the tip of my tongue, overreaching. That's one we associate less with the psychology and, and more with, with the kind of the, the physiology. So let's imagine that Bauman, he, you know, he smashes nine of them at 64 seconds, 10 of them, and then he drops off a little bit. What do you mean by overreaching? Because it's a more physiological term. Yeah, it means, so for, for our listeners at home might be familiar with the term, you might see that in training blocks, particularly our triathlon listeners. Kirsty mentioned it on the podcast we did on triathlon, yes. where they go through a phase of training known as overreaching, mm. where you're almost trying to do too much. You're doing more than maybe is uh, enough to handle what you mm. can handle at that given time. And in this particular session, this is what we're seeing. Pre would be doing reps that he isn't going to be able to sustain for the duration of the session. He's overreaching. He's going too fast. He's going too hard. He's trying to get this big physiological effect. Sometimes coaches set that as, as, a, as a method of getting, um, what did Alex used to call it with me, off, off the back of it, looking for super compensation off the back of that overreaching yeah. session because you're going so deep off the, off the back of it. Yeah, I'll give you an analogy. That I think the difference between um, progressive overload to achieve super compensation, it's a bit like an elastic band, isn't it? Imagine I've got an elastic band and that's the progressive overload. We, we stretch in, we are... We're super compensating. We need to overload, but progressively. And then for me, overeating is where that band snaps. Yeah, just goes too far, too far, too soon. Unless, of course, as we mentioned, it's planned in for a reason uh, yeah. into into a plan, which which it can be. But in this case, absolutely not. You're just going too far. You're going over the top, as yeah. I like to call it. And and a, a description I like to use with the athletes is it's when you often see athletes on their back, not for a good reason. Yeah, You know, they're really, they've gone to the well and sometimes a bit yeah. too soon. So what, what we're saying is that Bowerman has, has backed off uh, Steve Prefontaine in the early 70s for, for psychological reasons, 
you know, doesn't want to destroy him mentally. And also for, for reasons which are more physiological, which are to do with overreaching. Let's give you a third scenario. We imagine that Prefontaine goes on the track and he miraculously runs those 12 400s in 64 seconds and he's on yeah. for he's, he's he's in 1320 shape and it's april 1972 still got four or five months till the olympics what's the danger there lewis he's not on his back he's not overreached he says he feels fine he's done a recovery run the next day physiologically looks fine mentally he's on a massive high because he's done well, what's the danger for me there's, there's a couple of things um i think firstly it could be a real positive it could be that he's in um, better shape than the coach thinks he's in. Yeah. Um, but that could lead to the athlete then getting carried away. So mm. they've they've achieved this session on a massive high and they're starting to think, right, well, my goal pace is now maybe going to be 62s. Yeah. So you I'm now... the world record. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. I'm, I'm going to now chase that down. And they can, again, maybe start trying to overreach for different things or they might think, well, next time I do that session, I want to see it done in 63s yeah. and 62s to get confidence from it because last time I did it was 64s. So there's a few different things there that could lead to problems down the line. Um, I guess a question back to you, Matt, here is, you know, athletes are often striving to to hit the best possible session. So people will be sat listening in thinking, well, what's the problem if he hits 64s, mm. you know, consistently? That just shows he's in really good shape and he was maybe, you know, trying hard, which links back to our previous podcast about this work ethic of consistently trying hard and thinking that's exactly what you've got to do every single time. Work as hard as you possibly can. But what we're saying here is that the session's been set up for a reason, hasn't it, mm. at, that, at that pace, that 66s. So sometimes you know, giving it absolutely everything and hitting faster splits sometimes isn't always the answer. Yes, and we mentioned another late great coach, didn't we? I think in the last podcast called Arthur Lydiard. Yes. Uh, and we said that, you know, one of the things that, that I've taken from Arthur Lydiard is, you know, regardless of, 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 of the debates about lo the benefits or disbenefits of long steady distance running is, for, for what I get, got from Lydiard was the, the fact that you can only really stress that lactate system, that in simple terms, speed endurance system for what, six, seven, eight weeks before you reach a peak? Yeah. So my view would be, well, look, if, if Prefontaine is capable of 1321 uh, as his lifetime best, um, and he's already running 64 seconds for 12 400s in April, well, he's got nowhere to go. That can't be sustained over another four or five months. It, it physiologically must reach a peak, yep. and then it can't be sustained. He then probably panics and then pushes again. His times are going back to 65, 66, 67. And then part what tends to happen when we push overeating too far? Injury or illness Injury, or breakdown. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So yeah. we'll never know whether Prefontaine and Bauman got it right. Many people would say perhaps he didn't because for many people they expected him to win the gold medal in that 1972 5,000-metre final. Question of sport, who won it? Famous Finnish runner? Lassie Viren. Lassie Viren. And yeah. you mentioned the name of a, a British runner that got the bronze medal. Ian Stewart. Ian Stewart. Yeah. Where did pre-finish? You know that? Fourth, yeah. Fourth, yeah. And there was that the, the famous joke of Prefontaine going home saying maybe they'll name a street after me and call it Fourth Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> which I really <laughs> like. Did you know? <laughs> there you one. go. It's a new one for you. Yeah. So yeah, the, I, I think for me, there's a lot that stands out there. Like you say, we, we'll never know, and it, it's it's worth noting as well when pre went to those Olympics. Although I think the Americans had him as as favourite, and he was a bit of a, a bit of a rock star, wasn't he? He was. He was. He no. was the big one in the in the athletics world. Yeah. But he was young, wasn't he? He was only 21, was he, Matt? At those Olympics, yeah, very, very early 20s. Yeah. So. Unfortunately, we never really got, well, we didn't get to see, we got to see him a little bit, but we didn't get to see him later on in the Olympics because unfortunately he passed away in that, in that yeah, tragic accident. Yeah, Montreal came along, it possibly would have, have been his peak, but once again, you know, Lassie Viren, the double-double, the four Olympic gold medals, you know, could anybody have beaten Viren in those Olympics over five and ten? Possibly not. You know, no. there's two theories with Prefontaine. One is that we never saw the best of him, sadly. Yeah. The second is that actually, you know, with the American collegiate system, some of the critics of that system would say, well, look, the guy was racing so hard, we probably did see the best of him. We'll never know. Yeah. It's it's hypothetical. But I think from a coaching point of view, the, what Bauman leaves you and I with and, 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 and the athletics community with nowadays is it's it's how to bridge between goal pace on the one uh, date pace on the one hand and goal pace on the other how to narrow that gap 
uh, how to bridge between the two. So you do need goal pace. It is important, but you need date pace to help get you there. And let's backtrack here to the episode that Jethro came on. I think it's episode two. And we, we spoke about planning your year out and picking those big goal races in your year. And now is going to be, our listeners are tuning in now, coming towards the end of the calendar year. As you, as you know, we've spoken mm. about that before, Matt. Have, you know, yeah. And um, they're starting to look at 2024 and where those main goal races will be. And as you say, you're probably going to have a bit of a focus on goal pace because you're going to put down times that you want to achieve and there's nothing wrong with that you know it's it's something that I believe people should have motivation towards and it's something that you should think about but we talk a lot about focusing on the process and mm. not and not just the goal but what we're saying here is I'm going to use the marathon as an example just because we've come back from the marathon at the weekend exactly yeah uh, and I'm going to pick a round number. Uh, let's say 3.30 for the marathon because it's a nice round number and it's around five minute per kilometer and it's around eight minute per mile for 3.30. And people are going, right, I want to run a three thir- sub 3.30 marathon and I want to do that uh, in, you know, April 2024 at Manchester Marathon. Yeah. And they go out in the new year, you know, they've, they've enjoyed themselves over Christmas, they've enjoyed themselves over, over New Year. And they see a schedule that's been printed off online, maybe, uh, or maybe even set by a coach. And one of those runs has some marathon pace within that run. And what we're saying here is, let's not get carried away and start trying to run eight-minute miles or five-minute Ks in January when it says marathon pace. And I believe that one of your previous contributors, the wonderful Sonia Samuels, spoke about that in previous weeks. Yes. It's when we go for... The goal pace, as Bauman would use it. We're not saying it's irrelevant, but it's when we do it. That's what I took from that podcast. So let's link that to periodization then, which we've touched on again in previous podcasts and and getting that periodization right. Because I think a lot of our listeners, it'd be fair to say, um, maybe wouldn't know how to periodize their own training plan. But what we're talking about here is is relevant in the case of we don't we don't necessarily need to be at our target pace in January because we want to be there in April. But how do we go about, as you just said, what Bowman left us with, how do we go about bridging that gap between date pace, where we are in January after New Year, let's Mm. say January the 4th, January the 5th, I think January 3rd might be the the Monday of the week, January 3rd comes round. How do we then bridge that gap from where we are to where we want to be? Mm. Well, let's go back to another analogy that we used in our previous podcast, Lewis, was we talked about Toblerone. Yes. Oh, well, we're closer to Christmas now. I hope it's on your order. Yeah. You got it booked in. Definitely. <laughs> so when, when we talked about Toblerone, we, we, we both spoke about the need for, you know, a, a giant Toblerone is better than a normal sized Toblerone. And we said, did, did we not, that it's because it's got a wider base? Yes. Yeah. So what sorts of work would you get athletes doing in that base building phase? So, yeah, yes. I'd be looking at the uh, longer aerobic work yeah, and, the, the uh, and building runs, that up. Traditional long runs, yeah, anything else? I would certainly start off as well. If, if, if they were coming into that, that phase as well, particularly after Christmas and New Year, we've spoken about before yourself and, and me, Matt, we've looked at bridging sessions as well, you know, getting them back into their training plan. Sure. If, if they've maybe had a couple of down weeks from things yeah. over Christmas. but and, and I would keep them, uh, again, more aerobic, less intense. Yeah. I would have things like active recoveries in there. And what yeah. we mean by active recoveries is recoveries where you're not stopping you're not static you're moving around and then you're keeping things because if you roll a recovery or float a recovery or even jog a recovery we that that is aerobically dominant it's it's keeping our work aerobically dominant exactly and there's the the, also the the scientific concept you know around that as well as if we are operating aerobically we're actually trying to shift some of that lactate that's been potentially generated as well mm. although i would stay away from big lactic work workouts in there be, be more aerobically dominant maybe some longer hill reps as well i'm a ah, big fan of longer hill reps so at the base building phase what i'm hearing lewis is we're avoiding too much speed endurance yeah we're always keeping close to speed with our alactic strides maybe some maybe strides in there 30 second strides we've yep. got that stop start energy system the atp cp system i get that and we can work that all year round but we avoid the stressful stuff yes the speed endurance stuff which stresses our lactic system we know it's finite we can only do that for six seven eight weeks so aerobic endurance the hills would be what endurance 
Oh, God, strength endurance. Strength endurance. Yeah, because it gets you that sport-specific strength within there. You know, you work in the quads and the glutes, and Absolutely. if you're coming down as well, you, you're eccentrically loading coming ra- coming down, so you're getting that big hit of aerobic endurance, but strength endurance as well. Yeah. So I had an athlete who contacted me this morning. I need, to, I need to build up my strength endurance, Matt. And they said, I'm going out tonight, Matt, and I'm going to do 10 by 30 second hill sprints. And I said, that's a form of strength endurance. Yep. But what's the danger with doing that? Um, I think the danger would be they maybe go too hard on the reps. I know I've seen that before where people go too fast on 30 second so reps. System are they you go in? more kind of anaerobic or even lactate. lactate yeah, because yeah. it's too short. So give me a session named after a country where I said, don't do those hill reps. You know, don't sprint up for 30 seconds and just shuffle down. I named it after a country. I wanted them to do a more continuous hill session. What would that be? That'd be Kenyan Hills. Kenyan Hills. I feel like I feel like we're on a bit of a roll with the quiz questions here. Yeah. I feel like we make a good quiz team, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a way of building aerobic yeah. endurance and strength endurance without overstressing the lactic system. Oh, and I'll bring another thing in here. So, yeah, we've talked about the stopwatch, the importance of that, running to, to split, yep. which Bauman was all about, goal pace. Yes, can be on yeah, your watch. yeah, it can certainly be. Date pace can be on your watch. But do you know what? I said, I, said, I did something bizarre. Do you know what I said to this athlete tonight? I said, you can do your Kenyan hills. All I want you to time is 20 minutes up and down, yep. continuity of our effort up a shallow hill. Uh, and I said, I'm not, I'm not bothered about. I've said all I'm bothered about is you do it for 20 minutes. Yeah. Don't look. Don't send me any data about how far you've run, how fast you've run. I must be mad saying that. I said I want you to run purely to feel. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think I would do exactly the same. Uh, in fact, I had an athlete who asked me what pace should I go up the hill. Really? And and we know as much as we can use technology, and I believe we should use technology it can be very unreliable on hills mm. because it's it's very hard for the technology to calculate the gradient in with the pace and, and the satellite. Of course, it is. it's got too many kind of variables to start throwing in there. So I, I say to all my athletes, you know, I'm just looking for a steady run up the hill and mm. an easy run down. Or it might be if we're doing Kenyan hills, I actually want you to be more steady throughout. Steady up, steady down, steady up, steady down. So that the more in a continuous rhythm. It depends what you're looking for. But it's very rare I'll ask them for but pace. What's steady, Lewis? I need a number. This is the Yeah, well, living. there you go. Yeah. Tell me what I do, should do. I do need you know a the, number. Do you know the greatest um, <laughs> explanation of steady and easy I've heard this year in 2023? One of my reflections was Emil Caress. He got interviewed on a podcast. And they said, we, we've heard a rumor that you run your easy and steady runs with a Casio stopwatch. And he said, yep, I do. You know, this is Emil Caress who set a British record, really? uh, the fastest British debut in London Marathon earlier this year. Uh, f- fastest marathon debut, in fact. And Emil, they said to him, but Emil, how, how do you know if it's easy? Or how do you know if it's steady? And he said, oh, it's easy, isn't it? He said, it's either easy yeah. or it's steady. They yeah. said, yeah, but what, what pace is that? He said, it's not a pace. Not a pace. He said, it's how I feel. Yeah, and we, but we, again, you're bringing out, Lewis, you're bringing out the social scientist in me. I feel as if I should be back at Loughborough. <laughs> Don't escape yet. We're on a good conversation. Don't sneak out the door. Well, we mentioned that Protestant work ethic that, yeah. that, uh, last time, didn't we, about the feeling people feel the need to, to flog themselves, not just in sport, but in life. Yeah. And, and, and Power of Ten, we mentioned benchmarking. But, I mean, um, I guess I guess I'm thinking of you mentioned boxing earlier. We had a little bit of a laugh about boxing and my charity fight. I think of football. I was just listening to to that wonderful talk sport. Yeah, yeah, I love talk sport. Yeah, Ali, Ma- Ali McCoy, oh, yeah. Jeff Sterling, is it? Oh, Jeff Sterling. Yeah, Jeff he's, Sterling. he's on talk sport now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and we, they were talking about oh, every time I turn it on, they're on about VAR. Yes. VAR. Yeah. And I guess I started thinking about this this podcast and and and, and split and feel and goal and date pace, and I just think that it's it's another culture example where we as humans give away our discretion our feeling our judgment our intuition to technology we, we, we're giving it up to artificial intelligence we're giving it up to a machine that tells us whether somebody scored a goal or not and we're forgetting to to think for ourselves and that that really is a cultural shift for me which uh, 
Again, it, I end up thinking we've, we've mentioned people like Steve Ovet today, we've mentioned Lassie Viren, we've mentioned Prefontaine. How the, how the hell did they manage with the Casio stopwatches? There was no Garmin, there was no Strava back then. Do you know the brilliant thing is, though, Matt, is they did manage. They did manage. They did manage, and, and, and we can manage. It's just a lot more difficult because we now know and we now live in a very different world. Yes. And... Um, Gemma talks a lot about, and we've we've spoken a lot about this on the pod, comparison, being the thief, the of, thief joy. of joy. Yeah, comparing ourselves to, to one another. They they didn't really have that in, in their they era. Didn't. I'll give you another cultural example. I, I had the privilege of doing a little bit of work with uh, somebody that, 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 that uh, works for the Lydiard Foundation called Lorraine Moller. And she was asked, a very famous New Zealand athlete yep. who um, won a bronze medal at the Barcelona Olympics in the marathon. And somebody asked her a question on this podcast. Not dissimilar to this. Uh, how the heck did you go to four, I think four consecutive Olympic marathons? And she said, do you know why? What's the secret of my longevity? She said, not just success with the bronze medal, but longevity, amazing achievement, four Olympics in the marathon. And she said, I always ran to feel not split. Amazing. Yeah. And she cre- she was crediting that as as... as the reason that she'd gone right from, I think she was in the Commonwealth Games as an 800-meter runner in something ridiculous like 1974. And yet she, I think she ran, unless I've got it wrong, I think she ran in the um, Atlanta Olympics in 96. This is after she'd won the bronze medal in Barcelona in 92. What a career. But she's crediting that to, I listened to my body. I think the word she used was kinesthetic feedback, the feeling of her body Telling her on, on on these out and back runs, on these these unstructured fartleks. I mean, these are these are sessions that are dying, Lewis. These are field based sessions and out and back. I get athletes saying to me, "What's an out and back? Mm. How, you know, it's a simple session. What's an unstructured fartlek? How fast do I go? No, you make it up as you go along. People are uncomfortable with this because they want prescription." <laughs> Yeah, and, and and we live in a world, particularly with our coaching, where you know that's what our business is built on, built on prescription of a, of a training plan. That's yes. what people are, are coming to us for, uh, and it's it's important that we provide that. But from time to time, um, I challenge myself and I challenge the athletes I work with to say, you know what, I want you to go out in the woods and I want you to. Uh, run a little bit harder up the hills and run a little bit easier down the hills. And I just want you to go out for 45 minutes and, and just have some fun with that. Mm. And and they'll, they'll come back, well, how hard do I go? Or, you know, what, what sort of pace? I'm like, don't worry about it. Just just mm. go out and, and you've I can see from your map, there's quite a few hills in that woods there, the mm. woods we want to go to. Go and have some fun with it. Yes. Um, and, and I sometimes describe it as like playing out. You know, go go and have some fun. Go and play out with Absolutely. your running. And the sheer fact that you've brought into in, in terrain into it. I mean, I spoke to an athlete several months ago that did do an out and back session that expressed a fair level of disgust in their time. Oh, I only came back at seven minute mile, and it should have been six thirty. And I said, well, it was on a canal. Yeah, it was slippy. It, there's a camber, you know. So there. 6.30 goal pace on the road was probably a seven-minute mile in on a canal anyway. Yeah. And that, that's a, a classic. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to reinvent uh, uh, Bauman or the, or the spirit of Bauman, really. that That's a classic example of where you would run for me to date pace and to, to feel far more than, than split. So let's add some, some context to this, map because you just... You just threw something at me earlier, and um, and I was w- well aware of what you were asking. And I think it's a question a lot of our listeners will ask: was, well, what what speed do I go at? What effort do I go? What is steady? I think you you alluded to, and it's a really good question. How do we actually start to measure all this? We're talking about date pace, goal pace, running to mm. feel, but some people do still need some guidance around that. So what sort of things are out there or what do we know of that can help our athletes, our listeners to say, well, go out and try this, but maybe try running to feel with this guide in mind? 
Yeah, I guess we can we can come to some accommodation. I guess we again as a social scientist we live in a a world which is either quantitative, numerical, statistically driven, or qualitative. Yeah. But I guess that we could try and forge a middle ground here by talking about that concept or that that little acronym RPE that RPE. you mentioned. What is it? Explain it. Rate of perceived exertion. So in, in simple terms, it's the effort we're putting in to, to something. So right now, I'm sat on a stool and my effort level is not, and I'm going to measure it not to 10 in this case. Some, mm. Sometimes people, in particularly in the physiology world, like to go not to 20. But in this in this case, not to 10. Not being nothing, I'm sat down, I'm doing absolutely nothing, I'm resting, recovering. 10 being it's as hard as I can possibly try. Max effort, which for me should come on race day. That's where you should really see the 10 out of 10. Yeah. You know, but it might be also described in some context as sprinting, flat out work, max power work. You know, if you're in the gym, it might be that I want you to work 10 out of 10 because I want you to put in max strength. So there's a couple of different things we can consider. But ultimately, it's the effort we're putting in. Now, on that numerical scale all the way up, we've got one. Well, what's one? Well, one might be walking. Well, what's two or three? Two, might, two, three might be easy or recovery running. Three or four might be your easy running. Five, six might be steady running. Seven, eight might be tempo, threshold. Nine, ten might be that anaerobic VO2 max work. We're increasing the effort as we go up the RPE scale. And we can link it to the good old talk test that we know we like, Matt, from time to time. We can put that on that scale. But there are also other scales as well, aren't there, out there that people yeah, can I think that the one to. you've picked up on, the naught to 10, is named after a very famous... Swedish tennis player. Some people believe he's my spitting image. Do you know who that 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 tennis player was? Oh well, it, you know, you know, you know what? I, I've, now you've said it, I've seen the resemblance. <laughs> Is it a double B? It's Beyond Borg. Beyond Borg, yes. We should apologise to any listeners under the age of about 40 that won't know what we're on about. Beyond Borg, the Borg scale, it's not named after him, by the way. Should, should we also apologise to the, the female listeners who once Beyond Borg had as their idol and now they're looking at Matt on our podcast thinking, God, I can't get it out of my head. That's it, yeah, <laughs> spitting image. Yeah. So yeah, talk to us about the Borg scale then. Obviously not named after the tennis player, yeah. but... Yeah, the Borg yeah. scale of perceived exertion, you can, you can either do that on a on a scale of one to five one to ten some people prefer one to 20 but it's it's a it's a numerical quantifiable scale but some people need numbers Lewis uh, and, and you like numbers and many many listeners will like numbers I mean I remember uh, when we did some work together on threshold running yeah. that, that you were you were very keen to say well for me that's a that's a kind of eight out of ten so that might suit some listeners oh I need a number but for me, I'm more qualitative. If you said to me, uh, Matt, um, threshold running is uh, running uh, comfortably hard. Yeah. Um, I think that was Jack Daniels, the exercise physiologist and coach that said it's comfortably hard. For me, that's fine. For other people, they'd say, well, I still need a number. Mm. Um, some people need a visual analogy. I, I've heard, I think it was uh, Carp, one of the one of the coaches that, that said that threshold running, doesn't, he didn't say it's eight out of ten, he didn't say it's comfortably hard. He said, imagine lighting a match yeah, and you put your finger in the flame. If you hold it there too long, you're going to get burnt. Yeah, But a way not to get burnt is keep dipping in and out, dipping in. Hold your finger to the flame and pull it back. Again, that works for me because I might have a little bit of the visual learner in me. It doesn't really matter whether you say 8 out of 10, comfortably hard, or or use a visual analogy. As long as, I guess as coaches, as long as we understand what makes the athlete tick. Yeah. Yeah. We're athlete-centered, to use a, a, a tutor a tutor buzzword there. We are athlete-centered. We know which way people people lean you know what 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 tip what floats their boat as we would say in burton on trent and i think for our listeners who are, who are tuning in some people may resonate with that straight away and think well i know where i fit in there you know i'm the type of person who likes numbers or i'm the, t the, the type of person who likes that comfortably hard or you know we get a lot of people who, who can't figure that out. And I guess that's where we come in as coaches as well, mm. because it is a learning journey for us as coaches as well. We don't just get it straight away with our athletes. It's relationship building over yeah, time. Yeah. And it's really important to build those relationships because you get to know what your athlete prefers and, and, and what they what they respond to. And I have, I have an example here and, um, you know, a, a lady I worked with, I won't name her name, but uh, if she's listening, she'll know exactly who I mean. Um, we really struggled getting her into tempo zone, getting her to, to run her tempos in the correct way. Yes. 
And um, in the end, we, we, we took them out or I took them out. And I wanted to do that because I didn't want to put the pressure on her to, to feel like she needed to always hit these. And I thought, OK, well, what, what's a different way I'm going to get that in? And I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to put a steady run in there and yes. see what happens. I'm going to put a progression run in there. Yes. She did this steady run, this progression run. I thought that looks perfect. Yes. And it looked a little bit like a tempo. So I, I said, great progression run. We'll keep them in there for now. And we just kept them in there. And then we went on to a Q&A once and she happened to be on the Q&A. And, and I gave an example of, of this. And, and she was sat there and I said, well, what she doesn't know is... I've actually got a running tempos now. I just yeah. don't label it tempos. Right. What I was putting in the description was working for her. Start off a little bit stead steadier, ease mm. into it, and then just pick up the pace as you're feeling good, warm into it. Steady was what she needed to hear, not yeah. tempo. Because I think some people hear the word tempo and they think, right, it needs to be hard. It needs to be up-tempo, like an up-tempo music. Yes. It needs to be hard, and they go too hard. Yeah, very easy to talk past people. That's exactly. the danger of the qualitative approach. Yeah. Definitely. And that's yeah. why sometimes how we write things down can be interpreted so differently from the other end. Mm. And it's the, the power of communication, is it, between athlete and coach mm. and, and coach and athlete and having that relationship. Sure. But also the athlete maybe being aware of how hard is it? So what what are some things I mentioned the talk test there, Matt? What are some things the athlete can do to kind of analyze how hard they're trying? They, they may use the watch from time to time. I'm pointing at my watch here. It can be a guide, can't it? The watch mm. it can be used, but what else could they be doing? I, I, I don't know. I think it's. I think we've explored some of the other things that people can do. Uh, I guess to me it comes down to psychology, Lewis, and and the idea of. Uh, I was working with a, a marathon runner that had some success um, over in San Sebastian quite recently. Who was he's very into this this looking at what we call cognitive association, switching on. Okay. Yeah, and that that would be where he might say during the marathon, look every um, every five k, I really do need to make sure I'm on target. I'm trying to break two forty five or aim for two forty even. You know, I need to be split aware. Yeah, but there's a difference between being split aware and split driven. So there's cognitive association, but also he was talking about what we call dissociative strategies, taking his mind off things. He yeah. was actually saying to me that one of the things that I talked to him about the Paula Radcliffe method about, you know, just talk, counting to 100 in your head. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's, it's very intuitive. He had to find his own way. And you know what he said? He said that the biggest thing that helped him was actually encouraging or trying to encourage a group of runners around him who were obviously trying. You know, we get people holding up the 245 sign, the three-hour sign. You see it at part run, don't yeah. you? Yeah. They were obviously trying to break 245, and he was sort of saying to me, well, look, that, that kind of helped him take his mind off the split. Interesting. And, and why do you think, why do you think, I mean, you might think that that's bizarre, take your mind off the split, you want to run 245, but you should be focused. It, have, you ever, have you ever been too split-driven? I mean, I'll, I'll ask you for an example. I'll give you one. I used to be in, the, for a short while, I was into indoor rowing. Yeah. Indoor rowing. I thought this is great. I entered the, the British Indoor Rowing Championships. I think it was at Nottingham University. And to be honest with you, I packed it in because I hated it. Do you know why I hated it? Because it was all driven to power and split yeah. and well, metrics. You're on a rowing machine. It's hard. Yeah. It's physically hard. It makes you feel sick. But all you can do is look at that. Stare watch. at it. Yeah, yeah. And it's there. It's right in it, your face. It, you mentioned it omnipresent. And I'm thinking, how the hell do I take my mind off this? Yeah. And I started to, to clam up and to tense up and to feel awkward. Have you ever been so split-driven as an athlete in a race that it's it's messed you up? I'm asking you as an elite athlete. Not just a race, over a given period of time, because mm. I was aiming for an under-23 qualification mark, and... It wasn't happening, and the more it didn't happen, the more I became the more more, more aware of it, and the more I pushed, and I was so aware of it, I was going through times in the race where I'd look at the clock and think, oh, no, it's not on, or I don't feel great. And you know what? The next year, when I couldn't qualify anymore, was my big breakthrough year, mm. because all of a sudden the time had gone, I was more relaxed about things, and I'd learned to be a bit more relaxed. I'd learned yeah. from my mistakes. But I was, I was looking at it every 200 metres, Matt, on the track, because you have yeah. clocks every 200 metres in the big races. Yeah. You can see it. You couldn't be away from it. And yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't switch off. I couldn't relax. Mm. I'm conscious, though. I think we, you and I are in danger of, 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 of doing the listeners a disservice to us. I think what we're, we're, we're setting up a false binary between us or we're in danger of it. Split or feel, feel or split. Is there a middle ground? I mean, what about 
us trying to work through in the last few minutes a, a kind of hybrid approach? Do you think there, there, def- is? there definitely is. Yeah. Uh, I think you you mentioned a lovely example there, which is one I use a lot with my marathon runners if I feel like it will work for them. Looking at five k split, we call it's actually the perfect word for me. The five k checkpoints, and I, I, I use that term with my athletes. I say. You've got the 5K checkpoints that you're going to go across in, in the marathon. You know, they're going to beep and show me your 5K splits. I said, but let's use it as a checkpoint. You know, let's let's check the split at that point in time. And and I believe, and what I give Matt is I give I give them a pace range. I say, range. I say I'd like you to be between this and this, but, yeah. but don't panic if it's not. You know, if you see something different, Think about what you might need to do if it, if it's not what you want. But the biggest thing for me there as well is um, if you look every mile, say, in a marathon, I'm going to use Paula Radcliffe's world record in London, previous mm. world record as the example here. If you look at Paula Radcliffe's split for that splits for the, that world record, I believe there's a, there's a, about a difference of around about 17 or 18 seconds per mile between her fastest mile split of the race. And at that level, that's quite significant. And her slowest. It's a massive... 100 metres. It's a massive difference, isn't it? Yeah. If you were looking at every mile split, it it wouldn't give you an understanding of the rhythm you're in because you might see the mile split and then you might think it's too slow and you might speed up. You might react to it. Whereas actually, if you look at 5K it gives you more of a reflection of the rhythm that you're in because you've not seen every kilometre within Mm. that 5K. You've not seen every mile. You've just seen the overall mile. So if there was a bit of an uphill mile in there, it was a bit slow, and that was followed by a bit of a downhill mile, and then there was a bit of a flat mile, Mm. you'll get the average. You'll get the pace of the 5K. So I think that's a really nice way of looking. But then the key to it is, I think what you said is, how do you then switch off from it? So Again, it just works for me with marathons because a lot of a lot of the marathons then have a water point at around about five k. Yeah. So I'll say to the athletes at that point, grab your water, you know, maybe take your gel if if your gel is going to fall in that next kilometer, that next mile as well, and then take your mind back off the time and yeah. get back in your rhythm. And it's amazing how it, there'll be some listeners listening to this and and they'll say, oh, I can't, I can't do that. You know, it's I'm so focused on running a sub three marathon. I interviewed the the great um, David Hemery about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote a book about Sun this. Son was at Loughborough with me, actually. Yeah, that, yeah, right. yeah. Now, David Hemery, uh, most listeners will be aware, Olympic 400-meter uh, hurdle champion, 1968. I think it took him... Just over 48 seconds. Has he still got the British record, Matt? Has he got the um, British record? Not sure. I think didn't Akabusi Did Akabusi get it? A few years You're ago, the statistician. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it stood for a long time. But I, I remember when I interviewed uh, uh, David Henry, he was saying in the space of 48 seconds, he went from being remarkably goal-focused and, 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 and obviously not splits because, you know, he wouldn't be called out. Splits, but he was focused on it needs to be 48 seconds. I'm going to have to run close to world record to get this goal. He, he was remarkably goal-focused at what at some periods, but he switched his brain to other things. He said he could hear himself breathing. He felt his heart rate. He, he, he could he could feel his, I think it was a cinder track, I'm not sure, but he, he could feel his, 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 the thud of his spikes on the track. And, and he was almost saying in the space of just 48 seconds, he associated and disassociated at various points in the race. Which is amazing over that time frame, isn't it? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. And, and, and yet people are going to say, oh, I couldn't possibly do that over a marathon. He he said he had to do that yeah. in, in 48 seconds of a 400. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I think it's so important to do that personally. Yeah, I yeah. just think otherwise, I just think the mental side of it plays so much of a part that there's so much mental fatigue in looking and obsessing and yeah and, and back to our original point where we started this podcast around you know uh, athletes coming off the back of Valencia at the weekend and saying one thing I'm not doing is I'm, I'm not trusting the watch in my next marathon it's wrong because mm. let me give you the example what happened here one of my athletes he, he thought he was running really well his watch was beeping at him and he was on time, if yes. not if not slightly ahead of time, based on the watch. He yeah. was looking down at his kilometre splits, really? and he was thinking, oh, things are going well. Uh, I'm feeling a little bit tired, but, but things are going well. He got to halfway, and he looked at halfway at his watch, and he was 33 seconds behind schedule. And he said it was demoralising, mm. because he was expecting something else to flash up. 
Yeah. And then and then Gemma's dad, who, who I also coach, Nigel, he, he said, oh, I'm, I'm peed off. And I said, oh, why? You know, he ran great. He said, according to my watch, I was well on for inside four hours. He said, and then it wasn't until I got through 24 miles, I seen the 24 mile marker on mm. the course or whatever it was or whatever marker it was. I might be wrong there, but he seen a marker and he said, I did a quick calculation in my head and realized my watch is wrong. Yeah. And he, okay. and he, couldn't, he couldn't react. Yeah. So the technology can be wrong, but we have a saying in Burton-on-Trent, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm, I'm convinced there's a middle ground. There I, is. And I, th I think a, a way, we can set some ground rules here. I think if you want to run to split, yep. uh, be, it, be it goal pace, Bowerman, or date pace, Bowerman, I would, I would be setting an athlete in training. Because remember, we need to habit. There's no point just saying, go and do this in a race. You have to habituate it in training. So if I want an athlete to run to goal or um, date pace, I'll run them to uh, to distance. Interesting. If I want them to run to feel, do you know what I do? I don't run them to distance, I run them time. To, to time. Yeah. And do you know what I've started to do? Rather than saying, because some athletes say, is this session to feel or is it to split? Which one is it? Tell me. We're dealing in binaries. I say it's both. Mix it up. I'll give you an example of a session. doesn't matter the athlete, but I've uh, got an athlete at the moment that's training specifically for, you know, wants to park run uh, 5K PB, also wants to do well, I think, at the Telford 10K. Right, okay. So the session tonight is 2K yep. at your 10K split pace, yep. target pace. Yep. And then they're gonna they're gonna do another two k at the end. There's two the two slices of bread are two k at ten k goal pace. Yeah, yeah. Start off with that. Finish with that. In the middle, I've the got filling the, in the middle. The filling in the middle of the sandwich is something like four by three minutes. Yeah, at five k pace with a jog recovery, or whatever. But can you see how that five k is to feel, to feel pace. It yeah. has to be. You can't do three minutes. Well, you know. So I've deliberately said, look, there is a time to switch on to your target pace, your goal pace. Yeah. Because Telford's this weekend. It's no point talking about date pace. You are going. You are benchmarking at the start of the session over two k. Yeah. You are benchmarking at the end of a session over two k. But the middle bits you can switch off. Uh, and when they said, well, how fast should the four by three minutes be? I said, it's at 5K feel pace. As long as you feel that you're as if your legs are turning over a bit quicker. And I think that I've got the best of both worlds with that athlete. Yeah. It's both split and feel in one session. It's not an either or. It's not a binary. Yeah, it's satisfying. It's actually satisfying the athlete and the coach, which yeah, is I interesting. So. It's really interesting. Uh, what I would say to that, I'm going to go a little bit deeper on the psychology here. I was the type of athlete, if you gave me that in, in race week, I'd be, I'd be fine with it, absolutely fine with it. But I coached some athletes, if they didn't hit their goal pace or didn't feel good at that goal pace, they'd then lose confidence going into the race, which sure. is you know the week of the race. Whereas for me... I was the opposite. I'd almost prefer not to be at goal yeah. pace because I'd be like, I want to save it for the weekend. You know, that's Absolutely. when I psychologically want to be on it. Yeah. Um, but I think just for people who are tuning in, it's almost not being worried one way or the other. It's figuring out yourself what, what you like. If you're the type of person who's going to get confidence from being at that goal pace in that 2K, then by all means do that if it's the right thing for you. But like me, I'd go there and go, you know what? I'm not bothered. I'll find out my goal pace yeah. on Sunday at the Telford 10K. So I'm going to just knock that back a little bit. And as long as I'm having the conversation, so let's hypothetical, you're my coach here, Matt. Yeah. As long as I communicate with you and said, Matt, I know I'm aiming for, you know, I'm aiming for 30 minutes, which is three minute Ks. I decided to go at three or fives because I felt like that was right because it was a bit wet. It was a bit windy, you know, didn't, uh, didn't have my race shoes on. Yeah. I, I suspect my, my goal pace at the weekend will be three minutes. Absolutely. And I also think that, that that links into a slightly different podcast. Maybe you and I or you and uh, another coach can explore that. That, that, that links into goal setting. And, and for me, uh, one of the things I would always do as athletes is say, have an A goal, yeah. have a B goal and a C goal. So it may well be that after doing, um, you know, the, the, the session tonight, you know, uh, 1K at, 
you know, sorry, 2K at 10K pace, and then the middle bit of the sandwich to feel, and then the last bit. It may be that they say, oh, I'm not quite ready to run 35 minutes. It needs to be 36 and a half. That's my B goal or whatever. So that, that links into a, a slightly different... Yeah, that's an interesting... With that one, Matt, just a quick question back yeah. at you. With A, B and C goals, um, would you ever set them there... Their A, B and C goals aren't all time specific. Would you say I've got my A goal is to run this time. My B goal is to potentially finish with a faster 5K than the first 5K. How, how would you do that? Yeah, it uh, depends on the athlete. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times I will will do it purely to time. Like a, an athlete that I recently coached, uh, San Sebastian, we said, look, we want you to run, you know, um, break your PBs, your C, C goal 253, yeah. B goal is 245 and then... The real aspirational goal is sub 240. So you can do it that way. Although I think, you know, a safer way of doing it is to have at least one of those three goals as a, as a process-based goal. Yeah. Oh, you you know, like your Gemma's run a negative split. You know, it doesn't matter what the negative split was or whether she ran 247 or 257. Doesn't, she's run a negative split. So yeah. I think that that would be a more process-based goal. Or, you know, did you get your hydration right? Or, or did you feel that, that you got your pre-race meal right? You know, something like that would be a, a good goal as well. Just so you get into this virtuous circle of feeling as if you've achieved achieved anything rather than this kind of again binary I've either succeeded or I've I've failed yeah I think that that's the kind of point I was hoping to the hoping that you'd touch on which you've done so nicely is that I think if people have an A, B and C goal time related and they don't hit any of them Mm. they almost associate that then with failure yeah um Whereas actually, if they've got something in there that they're working towards, and, and you use Gemma there from the weekend, like Gemma's goal this weekend wasn't time specific at all. Um, I actually believed she could run a PB, uh, and I think she, she could have if, if maybe she'd pushed on a little bit sooner, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was to go there to enjoy the marathon experience by running a negative split, feeling good in the second half, yeah. not not crumbling, not overdoing it, because she'd ran an ultra just, un, uh, just under a month ago, and... You just don't know how the body's going to respond. So we didn't want to go off too hard and for it to crumble. So we avoided that conversation and and it worked really well. But I'm just thinking for some of our listeners out there, we've all been there, haven't we? Yourself and, and me included, yeah. where A goal's gone, B goal's gone and the C goal's gone. C goal's gone, And yeah. you've got to dig really deep mentally to, to get yourself to the finish line. And I think sometimes... Uh, it's really important to maybe have either some process goals that you can work on to, yeah. to get yourself home or even some like mantras or values that you're thinking, right, okay, well, I, I value my running and I really want to enjoy it. So the, now I know my goals have gotten, but I yeah. w- really want to get home and enjoy this experience. So, yeah. yeah. I think just to, I'm aware that we're coming to the last few moments now, but I, I think uh, let, let's take it back to training. Let's take it back to habituating before we get to a race. Uh, about five, 10 minutes ago, I set, I've told you about a session I'd set, which was partly to split, partly yeah. to feel. I want to be more ambitious. I'm going to coach you for the last five okay. minutes. Okay, I love that. How about we go for... Can I take, can I take you up on that offer? <laughs> you, you can't afford me. <laughs> We've gone to split and to feel. How about we, we go, we ramp it up. Uh, okay. We go for a threefold session where I'm going to set you a session. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be it's going to be a five k session because you okay. ran remind the listener you ran a, a pretty good park run a few months ago didn't you? you got a, I did at Beacon yeah park. Beacon Hill it? Park Run record which is fifteen fifty and it's a relatively tough course a hundred meters of of climbing within yeah. the first uh, mile and a half I believe yeah right. so it's tough. So your session is going to be three by a mile. Okay. Hypothetical session. I'd like you to run your first mile of this rep. Uh, this session, rather, your first rep, your first mile. I want you to run it. I want you to take take off your watch. Take okay. it off. Yeah, yeah. Can you run it purely to feel? Yeah. How, how are you going to do that then? It's going to be your 5K feel pace. Go on, what works for Lewis? Good, really good question. Uh, a couple of questions back to my coach to start yeah. with. What's my recovery between the three by a mile? Yeah, I'm going to make it. You get a, a, a minutes jog. A minutes jog. Okay. And is it on um, a similar terrain to the park run? So is get it on... Similar. Okay. Yeah. We can get, get you over Beacon Park. We can habituate the course. But that watch is gone. So how are you going to know how quick to run? It's a really good question. I'm going to... So for me, uh, there's a couple of check-ins I'll do myself. So I'll get myself into a rhythm early, a rhythm that I feel is right mm. for me. Now, I'm if it's 5K effort and you're asking me to do a mile, I'd be saying to myself, well, you know what? Beacon Park Run is going to be around about 15 minutes. And, and I'm not an exact science guy. Mm. It's like people will say, well, you ran closer to 16 minutes. Mm. But I'm telling myself in my head... 
15 minutes is roughly what I'm going to run. So the pace I'm running for this rep right now, would I be able to sustain that for 15 minutes? Yeah. That's that's my cue for myself. I'm with you. But then I'll check in as I'm going. You know, I want to be I want to be breathing quite hard, but I don't want to be completely gassed where if I come round and I lap round past you, Matt, and let's say I pass you at a kilometre and you say, Lewis, how's it going? In my head, I should be able to answer you in kind of a couple of words. Yeah, you know? so you've gone for the qualitative. That's yeah. interesting. Well done on rep number one. Thank you. Off you go on your little your little jog. Yeah. You're coming back to me. I'm about to... Uh, I've got the stopwatch in my hand now. You're allowed to wear your watch now. Thank you. I'm going to run you on the second rep, and I'm going to run you to split, but I'm going to run you to what Bowerman would have called date pace. So you've got to tell me. You've got you know, 15 seconds before the second rep starts. You know, you, you, you're chomping at the bit. You're getting into the session. What's going to be our agreed date pace on your watch? Okay, interesting. Now, before we go to that, can I give you two examples of what I'd be yeah. looking at in my recovery yeah. because I used to have a, a couple of things I'd check in with and, and it, it fits very nicely with this hybrid approach. Yeah. So the first thing I'd check in with was because John Nuttall, my, my late yeah, great the, the, coach. And you paid wonderful tribute to. Uh, yeah. Him, and um, he was just, you know, brilliant at, at getting me to n- understand the recovery. You know, it's not about how you run the reps, it's how you recover. That's what I'm looking for. How well are you recovering? Tells me everything I need to know. So I became aware of this as an athlete. Mm. So first thing I'd be looking for is has my breathing rate dropped in the recovery? Is my heart rate dropping down? Am I able to talk to you, my coach, Matt, when you say, you know, what pace are we looking at here, Matt? I should be able to answer you now and have a conversation with you. I'm recovering. But I also used to look at my heart rate because I I have a heart rate chest strap. So I use a little bit of data there. But I also go back to my feel and those little nice mm. cues that I'm looking for. Yeah. And then, quite rightly, you'd say, right, what what pace are we looking for here? And I'd have said around about 320 per kilometer. That's mm. roughly what I'm looking at, Matt. I'm, I'm aiming to go about 320 for this kilometer, which is about 520 to 525 for the mile. So what would your date pace be today? You might not be in 1550 shape at the moment. Definitely not. Right now I'm not. I've been nursing a bit of a calf niggle, so I've not been able to do the the faster work that I wanted to do. I've been keeping it more aerobic. So it might be between 5.30 and 5.40. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and sometimes I'd allow myself a little bit more leeway, maybe say 5.30 to 5.45, just to be a bit kinder to myself. Yeah. yeah, but we're not going to get too disheartened because we know it's definitely pace, not. Definitely we not. We know you've been injured, and we yeah. know that you're not going to have another crack at that Beacon Park run record for another two months. No, and to put this into perspective as well, and I wouldn't get over obsessed with it, but before the Beacon Park run, I was probably doing my tempos closer to five forty-five. Yes, but I'm but I'm accepting that right now I'm not there. Yeah, right I'm, I'm, I'm here. There. Yeah, you've done all right. You just come in at five forty-two. Okay, 542, I'll take that. You, you're okay. I mean, that, you know, and, and you've had quite a few chocolate biscuits and coffee <laughs> now, you know, before we've gone on air. So, and you're talking to me, you're recovering, you're listening to your heart rate and you're monitoring it and you're talk, using the talk test. Third and final rep. So, go on, this is an answer. What's the goal pace? You're going to break that part run in, I don't know, January 2024, Lewis. Okay. So, what, what's it going to be then? What, what do we need to hit? So, then I do have to run those 320Ks. I need to run faster than sort of 520 per mile. Yeah. yeah. So, 520 a mile. Yeah. Absolutely. So, we might have a session where, I'm just making that up where we can say run to feel on rep one, yep. you know, run to, to date pace on rep two and run to goal pace on, on rep three. Uh, what a wonderful way of working. You're probably not yet ready to do that session, Lewis, because I don't think that you're ready to have a go at goal pace yet. Come talk to me, um, you know, after you've had your turkey, you've shaken down the turkey, it's January the 10th, maybe we can get you to do that session. Oh, it's my birthday on the 9th, Matt. You might have to give me another day on the side of that. <laughs> I meant 2025. All oh, right, okay, so I've got a year and a day. <laughs> no, I love that. I, lo- I really like that concept as well. I guess for our listeners at home, you know, we're talking in the benefits of, of having a coach here, of, of bouncing yeah. these ideas off. But hopefully we're giving people ideas as to how they can structure their own sessions. And back to that word, play. Have a play around with it. I, I don't, I personally, and I don't know if you agree with this, Matt, I don't believe coaching is an exact science. No, I'm an artist. Uh, I'm, you know, liberal, left-wing kind of sociology sort of person. So I'm, I'm very much into the the idea of guided discovery. It's what you allow me to do with some of your athletes as well. It's, it's to kind of co-produce sessions with them. That's how we learn. We learn by making 
making mistakes that we learn from and don't get hurt by. That, yeah. That's the art of coaching to give people a little bit of free reign. And unless we explore, unless we experiment, then we're never going to grow as, as athletes or human beings. So I think a really good message to, to end on is exactly that. Why not explore? Why yeah. not experiment if you're not coached? Exactly. You know, if you want to find out more about coaching, you can do. You can contact us at New Levels Coaching. You know, Matt is one of our coaches. He's brilliant. He's getting some great results. And we've got a lot of coaches there, all who have their own individual coaching styles. Absolutely. Which yeah. is great for the coaching world as well. Yeah. But we all operate off a similar philosophy and platform whereby, and I love what you said there, Matt, we, we explore, we learn together. We're going to fail together. That's all part of the process. But we do it in a safe way their people enjoy their training and hopefully enjoy that process so the message we're we're leaving you with today is we want you to enjoy your training we want you to have some fun with it but don't be afraid to play around with it and and maybe the hybrid approach of yes use the watch we're not saying don't use the watch don't use technology technology can be great as well Mm. but don't become reliant on it you know mix it up and don't be afraid to mix it up and you know what i was going to say i was going to say lewis to finish off how are we doing for time? But I'm not going to say that because, <laughs> because this is not a split-driven podcast. This has been a process and feel-based podcast. Put it there, buddy. Which is what I really like. So I'm not going to check the clock, although I will when we've finished. I, if I was judging, I think we've been about 50 to 55 minutes, but I've enjoyed every single minute of it, Matt. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure. So thank you for joining me again. Hopefully many more in the new year. Yes, plenty more to come. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I always enjoy chatting to Matt. We we do bounce off each other and you can see that our coaching brains are, are very similar and hopefully you can see how we work together so well. Uh, we've got plenty of more podcasts coming before Christmas and New Year. We've got one special one which we do want to leave you with before Christmas and that's going to be around what, sh- what should running look like over the festive period and what and what do we believe it should look like. So, sit, ch- and so stay tuned for that one, I should say. If you want to find out more about New Levels Coaching, you can do so on either our social media channels we're very active on instagram and facebook our website newlevelscoaching.co.uk and also if this is the first time you've tuned into the podcast then please tune in for plenty more episodes remember like share comment pass on your feedback it's always well appreciated in the meantime enjoy your training good luck of your racing and don't forget to enjoy running to feel and not just split